Hey, security peeps, we are live with another edition of Breaking Into Cybersecurity, and I messed up. I didn't put our little... um. the controls taken away from me <laughs> let's take round number two Abby. Round two. at least that was only a small mistake and not a full-on failure well guess <laughs> what Since this, is, this is live this will be kept for its entirety uh so everyone welcome to breaking into cybersecurity. CISO Thursday and we have um the CISO of the year of the decade. What was the award that you got, Andy? It's um, the, the Hall of Fame. CISO Hall of Fame 2021. CISO Hall of Fame. Hall so, of that, fame. so that's the perfect CISO. Right, there. right next to um the penguin. Um and to introduce our guest, Renee Small, um follow us all on LinkedIn. Um as well as if you're on YouTube, hit that subscribe button and that notification button. And for those of you on podcast, uh, subscribe to the podcast, give us a five star review, uh, and Six share. Stars. With Come on, what? Six stars. Six as stars. Many stars as we can get. Yeah. Exactly. All the stars. <laughs> so uh, first, to introduce Renee. Renee, our super recruiter. Hello, folks. I um, am Renee Small, cybersecurity super recruiter, helping awesome leaders hire great talent. And I messed up the beginning just now, but it's all good. I am here. I am hungry. (laughs) But I am excited to be here with Andy Ellis. I'm really excited to be here, Renee. Awesome. So we've lined up an amazing um, topic for today because Andy has had the, the, the fortune of going through and leading everything from startups to large enterprises. So we wanted to tap into his uh, great wealth of knowledge on team building. Um, I've seen, I've seen some approaches that Andy have has used over the years and loved it. So I I know he's writing a book in progress. um, So that's about to come in the future. But in the meantime, Andy, uh, give us an overview of your your background before we jump into the, the, the first question. Sure. First of all, for everybody watching live, Chag Sameach Purim, you know, happy Purim, uh, you know, happy St. Patrick's Day for those of you part of that niche religion, um, you know, happy evacuation day, those of you who live in Boston, those of you not familiar with it, this is actually a holiday in Boston, um, you know, evacuation day that celebrates when we had to flee the city. Uh, because the British were coming, but really it's an excuse to have St. Patrick's Day off. Um, I'm Andy Ellis. I was the CISO at Akamai for 20 years. Uh, I'm now a venture capitalist. I'm an operating partner at YL Ventures. Uh, That's a part-time role. I'm also part-time the advisory CISO at Orca Security. I advise uh, too many startups to currently count. 
I have a leadership coaching firm, uh, Duha, that I do some executive mentoring, and we're working on you know bringing some more you know scalable leadership coaching. Uh, I'm writing a book on leadership, and I'm really excited to announce that I just signed the contract with the Hachette Book Group, who will be publishing the book in April eight April eighteenth of twenty twenty three. So you have plenty of time to decide you're going to buy it. <laughs> so, um, Andy, when, when it comes to building a team, like what do you look for, first of all, in, in building any team? So I think there's it's, it's an interesting question. Like what do you look for? I think it's how do you look rather than what do you look? Um, when you're building your team, it's really important to understand that you do have a mission. There's things you need to get done. But the question is, who do you want to end up being? And so what's your vision for yourself as an organization that's going to apply when you're done? And I put done in quotes because you're never really done. And the reason that that matters is sometimes you just have to make short-term tactical decisions. Like, it is time to do a SOC 2. I have nobody who knows how to do a SOC 2. So I need to hire somebody who has that capability. But most of the time, it's really around how are you developing your people into a cohesive team? And I like to compare it to football. Um, for those of you who are not American football fans, I'm sorry, but just pretend I'm using Cristiano Ronaldo's name instead of, you know, whatever it is. Um, so let's take Tom Brady, who's acknowledged as like the greatest quarterback of our generation. If you'd prefer I said Peyton Manning, enjoy thinking that, but it's not. Um, but you don't build a team out of Tom Brady's. Like 11 Tom Brady's on the football field at the same time lose football games. We've already demonstrated he can't catch the football when it matters. He almost certainly can't block. He's not a great – actually, we know he's an awful tackler. Um, he's just the greatest quarterback. You build a team by finding people who fit into roles, and the roles aren't set in stone. So people often think, oh, somebody leaves. How do I replace them? Like, you know, the I just lost the best tight end ever. I need to get the next closest. The answer is rarely that. You want to actually find people who will contribute in ways that you're currently missing and are going to help you be better. But usually, whoever just left your organization, you already have people who contribute really near them, or at least you should if you were doing good succession planning and if you had them training people behind them. You don't need to replace the person that left. You actually need to fill a gap somewhere else whenever someone leaves. So that's sort of my long-winded answer. <laughs> No, I love that answer. I think that's, um, you know, that's what makes leaders of great teams understanding this exact philosophy versus trying to continue to backfill and real thinking that you need, you know, 25 rock stars, like you said, or 25, you know, best in whatever mm -hmm. it is for your team, knowing that, you know, different skill sets matter in different spots. So I... 100% appreciate um, this philosophy. And to your point, you know, when, and I don't know if, the, if people outside of HR know about like the nine block, if they still use that with when you talked about succession planning, you know, you're always, you're just moving people around if you're doing it right. Yep. If you're doing it correctly, you are filling gaps. It's not always, okay, we now have to go out and like backfill the same exact person. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the nine block, mostly because I've seen it misused so badly, but it comes yeah. from a great place, which is how are you developing the people to take the place? And I think people often think of succession planning around terminations. 
They say, you know, how do I replace Renee when Renee leaves? The answer is no. How do I replace Renee so I can promote Renee into a better job? Like right. Renee's going to get bored doing the same work over and over and over again. So how do I teach like Chris, the new intern we just brought in to do Renee's job? Because Renee keeps turning down work that would be awesome if Renee could do. But let's give everything Renee does to Chris piece by piece. And then, you know, if it happens that Renee quits, it's okay because I've already replaced Renee with Chris. But more importantly, I just gave Renee a path to promotion which right. most companies don't do. We trap people because we let them become irreplaceable. And I think the nine box, if you approach it from that philosophy, get rid of the idea of irreplaceability by replacing people piece by piece. But yeah, and I think that the the nine block from my perspective is the way when it's done right. Like when you're yeah. really just thinking about who, and, and Chris, are you aware of the nine block? It might not be something that people are aware of. So it's almost like a tic-tac-toe grid and love andy's approach because to me it's the the essence of cross-training and it's the essence of resiliency within your organization because uh god forbid andy gets hit by a bus um we do still need someone to lead the the, the team so what can we do to ensure that there's resiliency within the team and others know what Andy would do on a day-to-day -day yep. basis? Yeah, but the nine bots, I think, Renee, for, for all the listeners, you should explain in an ideal world how it gets used. Right. In an ideal world, it's like a little kind of tic-tac-toe board. And in the upper right-hand corner is your, quote, ready now people. So if, for, and for each role, you have this. So yep. if you have someone who is going to be like like the next CISO you know you move people across and you put your your talent in this nine block and each one means something so someone may be like you know technically sound but they don't have the executive they don't have the gravitas or whatever right. some one of the boxes and I can't remember each individual box but one box may you know the super green people like you know they can't they need a lot of training to move forward um, on multiple different levels. So they need rounding out. Um, so the way I've seen it used successfully is you take, the, you know, the various people that are moving closer to that upper, you know, right-hand yep. corner and you get them if they, if they, if they can't, for example, if they are doing everything technically sound and you think they're almost ready, but then they need, um, executive coaching or they need, um, uh, Toastmasters classes or public speaking or whatever, and you, you mm -hmm. kind of ramp them up and you get them that additional skill, like whatever it is that is a, a little hole that's missing, you kind of build that skill. So what Andy was talking about is the stretch assignments and taking, you know, taking a little piece from if Andy's the currency. So it's just like, oh, let me let this person give the presentation right. next week or the week after or for three weeks or three months, whatever it is, so that they get that experience and exposure um, so that they can then quickly move into um, that role when Andy moves on or, you know, so it's creating that succession plan. And when I've seen it done really successfully, it works out really well because you see, you know, where people need um, additional help. And then you have folks that you know that they don't want to do it too. So, when, you know, when you go and I talk to Chris and I say, hey, Chris, what's your aspiration of what do you want to do next in your career? And you say, well, I never want to be a CISO. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to do that. You know, like you're not you're not getting them to that path. Like, okay, what do I want to do? I want to get oh, Andy's job. Right. Like I want this other, I don't want your job. That's craziness. I, I want this other thing. So you get them to that path too. So when it when it works, I think it works very well. 
Yeah, it really does. And I think that the key thing is there's a lot of on-the-job training that people just totally miss. Like if you are walking into a meeting with your peers, think about who could I just bring with me to be a fly on the wall for a while that they can understand what's happening in that meeting. And you just tell people, yeah, this is just on the job training so that they were, I'm doing development and every meeting I go to, I bring somebody who works for me. When the CISO goes to the board, do they have somebody staffing them? who's one of their direct reports, who isn't even saying anything the first few times. It's not like you're saying, oh, I'm going to make you deliver the, the board report. No, I'm going to make you listen to the questions the board asks me. So you get that experience. Exactly. And then Buddy's got a great question. I love this question. It's in the, in the chat where it's like, well, what happens if you manage to successfully train somebody to be as good as you are, like to be able to have your job or an equivalent level one, and now they're going to leave. And this is the best problem you could possibly have. If you have a pipeline where you can develop people and then they become as good as you and you don't have a role for them and they leave, that's great because you know what's going to happen? They are going to sing your praises everywhere they go. And they're going to say, you know, I had to leave because I was ready for a CISO gig. The CISO wasn't ready to move on. But if you're looking to break into cybersecurity, that's the team to do it because they took me from a junior level person to a senior level person. They gave me all these opportunities. But the reality is, like, if you can train somebody to be as good as you are, you you can get a bigger job. Mm-hmm. Like, my job, I was the head of security for Akamai for 20 years. I had a bunch of different titles. But the way that I gained more responsibility was by getting rid of responsibility to my team. So by the time I left, I had three people who worked for me, each of whom was doing the job of a CISO from 10 years before. So each of them had as big of a job as I had had when I first got the title. And that was okay, because now I had this much bigger role, and I had this great, you know, I had all these things, but I was giving them the opportunities to grow and to develop, and that's really what you're trying to do. So, Andy, when you talk about, like, you had all these different roles um, at Akamai, was it planned uh, growth at Akamai? Did you, like, take advantage of situations and and grow yourself, or uh, what was the situation? so it was interesting because I was the very first security hire at Akamai. Um, I think my original title was senior security engineer. Um, and you know, it was an interesting job. I, I literally, I showed up and they said that my job would be to harden the operating system. Like that's literally what I got hired to do. And when you, when you showed up in those days, you know, early startup days, you know, we were a public company, but the stock price was on its way downward from like 330. It was going to crater at like 59 cents. So like this was, you know, an interesting days. You got handed a laptop with a bad installation of Linux on it. And you were told like, yeah, go make this work. You have a week. And like three days into my week, my boss walks over and says, oh, by the way, next week, our BS7799 auditors are showing up. For those of you who are young, BS7799 is the precursor standard to what became ISO 27002. So I'm like, what's an audit? This is not what I was hired to do, but I got to run an audit. Um, And that was sort of my job for 20 years was anything that had security attached to it that nobody wanted to do either got dropped on my plate or I went and picked it up. And so when it was time to uh, think about, like, how are we going to sell security to customers? People just came to me and said, Andy, can you come convince this customer that we're secure? Um, Oh, we got to secure our actual product. So, you know, I helped found our architecture review practice because I was told, hey, Andy, we need you to review the security architecture of every product. So go convince the engineers to talk to you. 
Um, so I, I got a promotion to chief architect. This was fantastic. But I'm like, nobody's going to talk to me. But there are six other chief architects with different disciplines they love to talk to. And I convinced them that they wanted to do design reviews of every product. And so everybody was happy to come to the design review because you got seven chief architects when I just needed to do security reviews of all of these products. So a lot of it was, just, I just kept doing stuff. You know, I wrote a project management system to keep track of all of the projects I was dealing with. You know, I turned it into a security awareness program, actually turned it into our vacation tracker for 17 years. Uh, all vacation at Akamai was in the U.S. was tracked by the security dashboard. Because it was like, oh, yeah, I could do it, which was really cool. Like I could send your automated email that said you need to do security awareness training, but we didn't send it if you were on vacation. Like why fill your inbox? People love like little things like that. Um, we decided to launch products and we didn't have a security product management function. So I just took that on. And so my job just kept growing because I would say, yeah, that's a hard problem. Somebody needs to solve it. And I'm interested in learning how to solve it. So I learned how to do sales how to do marketing, how to do business development. I'm not saying I was good at all of them, <laughs> but they were all opportunities for me to learn something new. And along the way, I could say, okay, well, if I want to go do that, then I need to have somebody who's holding the fort on compliance. So I need to have somebody who's really good at that. I need to have somebody hold the fort on product security, on security intelligence. So you know, all of these jobs, I wasn't great at all of them. I was generally pretty good, but I could always find somebody who was better than I was to do those jobs. How big was your team? When, when you I started? left, it was 94 people. And so I'd grown it from, it from one. one. Yep. Wow. But can I ask a question there? Because you, you mentioned you weren't good at all of them. Um, would you say that when looking to build your teams, sometimes you look for generalists and sometimes you look for specialists? Absolutely. And in fact, I more often look for people who already have a specialty, but have demonstrated the ability to generalize. Like that's actually is the sweet spot, right? You want somebody who's going to come in and bring a skill set you don't often have. Uh, let's take uh, journalists. I had hired like four or five journalists, I think, in my time at Akamai to be security professionals, right? Because a journalist is somebody who has a, a great specialty. They know how to tell a story. They can interview somebody. And what's really fascinating, if you've ever actually worked with journalists, is like they can know absolutely nothing about the topic. Walk in, they know how to learn, how to ask the questions, how to tell a story, how to make sure they get what they've read proofed by somebody who understands. And you would swear this person was like a 30-year expert in the thing they just wrote about. If they're a good journalist, met a lot of bad journalists too, they're not so good at that. that Chris Krebs? Um, was it Chris Krebs that started that? <laughs> Was it? Um, yeah, right, uh, right, right. Brian Krebs does that. Brian like, Krebs. Yeah, Brian. Yeah. Now, Chris Krebs is the one in government. Um, right. But Brian Krebs basically like is the master of this. And all of a sudden, like Brian Krebs doesn't pretend to be an expert anymore. He now is an expert. It's amazing at how deep technically he became. And so that's what I want to look for is somebody who brings a specialty to the table that is one we don't yet have and not often one we need. And that's going to be an interesting. I want to come back to that in a moment. Um, but one, but then they can use that to grow outward. And when I say not one we need, it's not one that in a classic HR sense we need. Like nobody says we need journalism skills in cybersecurity. So it's not a need, but we do need journalism skills. We need librarian skills. We need people who understand complex system safety, even if it's a water treatment plant. 
We need people who are digital anthropologists who understand you know, the digital humanities. Like these are all things we need, but you will never find them on a job posting. And they're often niches. So you put out a job posting for a program manager. And what you need is somebody who walks in with a unique take that will make your team better. Well, I think we have some great comments um, from our listeners. Let's go through Tom, a couple of them. Before you do that, Chris, can I ask, um, Andy, the, the folks that you brought in as journalists, what roles did they have in security? Like, what did you bring them in to do? So uh, Akamai was known for the state of the Internet security report. And so that's really often we would bring them in there because we wanted to publish technical research. Uh, the team that we'd inherited was actually fantastic researchers, um, all of whom had English as a second language. And so we were asking these researchers to write a report not in their native language. And I think, you know, some of them had different, had interesting degrees. One was a psychologist. Um, but we were asking them to do something that wasn't in their wheelhouse. And so we brought in journalists and said, you know, your job is interview them, learn what their data is. And then the journalists started to dig in and do analysis. And so you know, kept writing more and more. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really where we started. We said, what the skill we need is somebody who can write. Right. And so anywhere you've got a writing job, go hire journalists. First of all, here's a dirty little secret. If you think that cybersecurity people are massively overpaid, you should see what journalists make. It's like nothing. <laughs> and so you could basically double their salary and you're still not paying them competitively with what it would take to put a security person who doesn't know how to write into the same job. In that spot. And so every year you can give like a 10% raise and they're ecstatic and over the moon. And you're sitting here going, look how much money I'm saving. And I actually have somebody better than I would have had if I tried to put a technical person in this role. Probably right. could do the same with teachers. Yep. Oh, absolutely. I um, have had a teacher who did was worked in our program manager in our compliance team who did our uh, new hire training. You know, we have to send somebody new hire training to teach you. Really, the most important thing we wanted to teach them was here's our email address. You can always reach out to us. And the person we sent like had worked as a teacher. She was fantastic at it. Mm -hmm. Um, Andy, and eventually, so they started out by creating these, um, the presentations and doing the documents. Did they eventually grow into other types of roles in security or did they kind of stay in that particular? So I mean, they, they stayed in that area, but that area grew. Like, I don't, if you followed what happened with the Saudi security report, you know, probably over the last seven years, it started from being this small niche publication to being like this entire series. It was technical blog posts, it was research, it was the actual report. So as they gained more depth, their job became bigger. Right. Um, you know, some people did, moved around, you know, did some you know, supported technical writing for architects, mm -hmm. but the advantage of being in a growth business is you can have people grow in their job and you don't have to say, oh, like I have to take away the thing you love to let you become bigger. Right, oh, that's fantastic. Okay, so I'm going to shell some people out that usually come on all the time. So Joseph says, hello, everyone. Been quite a while. Glad to be make, able to make make it to tune in this week. So Welcome, nice Joseph. to see you, Joseph. Hello, Cyber Peeps. Checking in from sunny San Diego. That's Steve Upshaw. He's always here. Um, Buddy made some funny comments earlier. Tom Great Brady canceled his retirement. <laughs> so <see>. we should. <laughs> I, I think that oh, I think we could talk about Brady for like two hours here. <laughs> 
on the, <laughs> started on the Patriots. Like, I, I actually, the real reason that Tom Brady canceled his retirement was somebody pointed out that Allison Cahill is likely to win another uh, championship this year, and she'll tie him at seven. And so he's got to try to you know get up to eight. So those of you who don't know who Allison Cahill is, she is the quarterback for the Boston Renegades, which is the national champions in the Women's Football Alliance. Ah, and I'll be there on April 30th watching (laughs) to start their title defense very awesome Andrew says hi everyone checking in from good old south in NOLA if we're on football I want to know who who does Andrew actually have as a quarterback down there I don't know yeah Andrew what's going on down there what's going on with your Saints man (laughs) did we read Andrew's I know Okay. Andrew says, I have an associate's degree in computer information systems. I also have a cyber boot camp training through Full Stack Academy and studying for my security plus certification. What is the best way to break into the cyber field? So here's my, my answer. First question is, do you have a job today or not? Because it's a different answer. If you have a job today, go figure out how your current organization interacts with the security team. And go hang out with the security people and ask how you could do your job differently to make their job easier. And what you'll discover is they'll start handing you security work. All right? And they'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, it would just be great if you guys could do this for me. And it'd be great if you did that. And all of a sudden, you're like, you're basically doing a security job. And now you can either transfer laterally if an opportunity comes available, or that's what you now play up on your resume you say that you were like the cyber specialist inside the help desk or in the product security team right and that's just really helpful and look if you don't like the word cyber if anybody's listening it's like oh my god i hate the word cyber give it up we lost that battle cyber <laughs> is what the field is today it is what it is and, and you, <laughs> the other thing is recognize and this is for everybody if there's a job you want recognize that the job description is um, an awful way for a company to market what they're looking for. And if you do not meet the qualifications, it doesn't matter, right? The quali- I'm going to go into a really long thing. I've got an, an op-ed piece I'm writing about how, sorry, no offense, Renee, but HR has really screwed everything up when it comes to hiring. HR. <laughs> I'm a, no, it's, it's actually, it's not just HR. It's actually also the labor lawyers. Um, this dates back to- Not the uh, leaders. <laughs> they don't have anything to do right. with it Well, either. the problem is the leaders have basically <laughs> delegated this problem over to HR and legal. And then what they get is not something they're happy with. So I'm not going to, I'm not saying that the leaders have helped with this problem, but they've let a problem get created on their watch. It's an awful problem. You want to defeat that? Here's what you do. You see a job posting that you want, go find every keyword in that job description and make sure that keyword appears somewhere in your resume, right? If you are like, there's this technology, I have no idea what it is. Great. Go spend a day learning the technology. So you could just put like have a little section of growth areas. I am developing in these areas and studying these current technologies, et cetera. The whole point here is to make sure that when the recruiter does a string search on your resume. Like they've got like 20 keywords. You want all 20 keywords on your resume and you will pass the recruiter. And now you get a shot at an interview. Right? Same thing and for your LinkedIn profile. Same thing for your LinkedIn profile, right? Make sure that you pass what is really a very naive filter in the recruiting organizations. And then like when you walk into the interview, you don't say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm amazing at this tech. You say, you know, I found this tech really interesting. I'm really excited to learn more about it. I'll be very honest. I'm not super deep on it yet, but I found it has parallels to this other thing I worked on. And I plan on bringing my skills from there forward. 
Like this isn't perfect. I'm not going to tell you do this and instantly you'll have a job tomorrow. But the biggest barrier for breaking into the field is your resume does not pass the filters that recruiting has put in place. Amen. Amen and amen. Joseph says, I love how Andy mentioned cross-training. Just like you anticipate threats and plan in advance, it is important to have people prepared to take on positions above them. Mentorship is an excellent way to enrich your team and step in when there's an unexpected resource gap. Great points, guys. And in fact, you take it one step further on that one, Joseph, which is you don't just use it when there's an unexpected resource gap. You actually start to create them. You actually have somebody, and as part of the mentorship, you identify and you say, like, you know, I have this person that has never been an incident manager before, and so we're going to build them up to become an incident manager because that's the next step in their field, and so we're not going to wait until we don't have any other incident managers and call on them. We'll actually call on them when there's support that can watch them and shadow them and take on. We'll just pretend that support isn't there to the rest of the world. So everybody else has to interact with this person who's developing. They have in their back pocket somebody who's going to watch them that nobody else knows is actually doing that. And that's a really key way to help build people up is you let the rest of the world see them succeed because they have a bunch of supports that are hidden from them, but hidden from the rest of the world in a way so they don't undercut the person who's learning to do a job. Nice. Really good point. Um, so Buddy was responding to Andrew saying, pick a position that interests you. He started off with an associate in cyber, became a security admin, business systems analyst, business architect, and now a director all within six years. So nice progression, Buddy. Buddy. Um, Joseph says, I, also, I always see specialty roles, but often HR forgets the importance of diversity, meaning generalists. We need experts, but we also need people who can easily grow beyond their com- comfort zone. Pretty much what you were saying earlier um let's see and have multiple versions of your resume so the only thing i don't like about multiple versions of resumes buddy is that um it could get really confusing and when you're applying to the same company and like if i'm on the other side of that and i see you know, you have a sysadmin resume up here and then you have a cyber resume down here and then you have a PM resume over here. <laughs> just like, because we see them all right in the same company. Now, granted, if you're, if you can keep track of which resume you sent to which company, I mean, good luck. But I'm a huge fan of pretty much um, what Andy was saying in terms of just taking the, doing exactly what he said, take the keywords, put them in there review a couple different jobs that could be that fit and look at the different keywords overall and kind of put them all in one resume, especially when you're um, early in your career, because you really shouldn't need that much experience anyway for entry level. I say this every, like every week. So Andy, I a hundred percent agree with you in terms of like the HR <laughs> Like, but I'm just saying it's, it's a collective. Oh, no, it's a, but yeah, just to be very clear, in case ever, in case, there's, there is no malice in HR that has done this. It's a collective what's, cluster. Right. What's basically happened is like management has said, oh, this is an HR problem. HR is horribly overworked and it's just trying to scale. Like the thing that you don't realize is a company puts out a job posting and they might get a thousand resumes show up. And most of them are, in fact, not qualified even for that work. 
And so they're very much incentivized to like get rid of as many resumes as they can. Yeah. So I had the funnest conversation this morning um, with a hiring manager and it was so funny because this is exactly what we were going through profiles yep. and he was dinging out everybody. He's like, no, this person is, I was like, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? <laughs> it was like, he was just going through the one after the other. No, 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 no. I'm like, you know, we have right. to. <laughs> yeah, and that's and right and then hr most hr professionals just react to that and say okay like if the hiring manager is trying to hire the clone of the person that left yeah like you're out of luck this is now not hr's problem that they're going to drop every resume you've got a recruiter who's like well unless i produce a resume that looks exactly like that last one i'm going to be told no so i'm going to filter out everything right right and it takes a seasoned person to push back and say look this is not it doesn't work like this like you can't just see profiles out there and think that this is the way it is because yep. my profile may be skinny. Someone else may put everything right. But we know in security, you really shouldn't be putting everything out there. Like every single, everything that you've done, because that's potential that's Intel. So, mm -hmm. you know, you may keep it kind of skinny and then the, the, the part, the, the leader is looking at it like, Oh, this profile doesn't have anything on it. Well, <laughs> so, so I get it on both yep. on, you know, for both sides. So Andrew says, I appreciate the heads up. Yes, Andrew, you're welcome. Um, Amber wants to know, how do you identify a generalist? What are the signs? That's a, I guess the question is in a hiring process or in a non-hiring process. And so let me answer the second one first and then try to back into how I would do it in hiring. Like a person who is a generalist is someone who uh, I can throw them at any problem and they'll provide value. Like they're not necessarily going to perfectly solve it, but they're going to walk in and I can say, look, I've got a problem over here and I need you to help. And they'll be able to, to learn enough and go help. Um, you know, I'll give an example. When Heartbleed happened, um, we had just hired an architect, uh, amazing, deep technical architect. And, you know, she comes in and she's literally her first week and Heartbleed has just happened. Um, she has literally written the book on, you know, trusted uh, computer systems. So like, She's not hired to do anything around incident management, but we needed an incident manager. We need somebody to come in and we're like, oh, hey, it turns out we've got to rotate, you know, 10,000 customer certificates and we need somebody to keep track of that process and orchestrate everything. And we needed somebody technical enough to, to walk through the babble. And so she sat in a conference room with a dozen other people for a week and a half. And because of that, we actually got through it sanely. Like that's a generalist who's also a deep specialist but that I could take them and they didn't like panic. Like that's, I think probably the single biggest sign is if I say, oh, you know, you're not good at this thing, but I want you to do it anyway. If they look at you and they're like, they're not a generalist. If they're like, oh, I'm really excited to learn. That's what a generalist is. And because they pick up these skills. And so what I would look for in hiring is I want to find somebody who doesn't have like a resume that all says the same thing. Like if every line is um, I installed good computer security. Like, you know, however you want to phrase that, that's somebody who's not telling me they're a generalist. Tell me about the other stuff you do. Like, my resume includes that, you know, for four years, I was functioned the CFO of a million-dollar nonprofit, right? So, look, like, boom, I just told you, yeah, yeah, I got this deep security thing, but I know how to run nonprofits. I know how to do finance and accounting. And, like, just out of that one line. And so that's a lot of times what you want to put in is what are these things that you have done 
that you wouldn't normally ascribe to the job you're about to do, but bring you a skill that is relevant. Andy, I, I want to follow up on that um, and ask another question because I think you brought up such. No, you're, you're out of questions. <laughs> <laughs> and what about this is my podcast. What <laughs> <laughs> up another point about nonprofit work, extracurricular activities, you know, and that's something that, especially when I'm working with young, young people or people newer in their careers, I'm huge on uh, having them show this yep. diversity of skills in other places. And I know we tend to do that when people are earlier on. So college, undergrad, and, and even like high school, the internships yep. and things like that. What do you what, what do you recommend? It's so interesting that you brought that up, the CFO piece. What do you recommend for um, seasoned professionals? Because sometimes that's all. Sometimes that's all you see. Tech, 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 tech. You know, like yeah. you don't see anything else. You don't have any interests on there. <laughs> you don't have anything. Right. And and I'm a huge fan. First of all, I want you to show me what you do outside of work. And I know that that's you know for some people that's a challenge because what they're doing outside of work is taking care of a family. And that doesn't show up really well on a resume. And so, yes, this is a place where some bias is going to come in. But if you do anything, think about what is the actual job this would be if you were paid. Right? What would the title be? And because that's what you want in your resume. So if you work with a nonprofit, don't just say, I work with a nonprofit. No, no. Like, are you the development director because you're out doing fundraising? Like, did you plan a fundraising activity? That's called development. Like, that's an amazing skill. Like, put that here that you have done that. And, and all you sort of have to do is just confirm with the nonprofits that they're comfortable with you describing your work with that name, right? And it's okay that you didn't get paid. So you've got us, you know, uh, do you want to do IT tech work for, you know, your nonprofit? They're like deploying new Wi-Fi system and security cameras. Oh yeah, you were the physical security integration specialist for the IT team. Like, sure, you were the IT team and you were putting up the cameras, but it just sounds really good. Like, think about how you would describe this work in a way that somebody else would like just put you into a box that was a helpful box. And that's that's all the way to do it. There's a lot of people who talk about, oh, I want to see that you have a passion for IT. It doesn't just have to be IT, but many of us do want to see that you're doing something besides just working a nine to five job. And there are people who just want to work a nine to five job and they don't want to talk about what their hobbies are. And you're just not going to have a leg up in the industry over the people who have some hobby that they can then put on their resume in a way that shows that they're doing and developing themselves over time. I have this funny story about a, a, um, a college student or a high school student, I think, who was applying for college scholarships. I was listening to this college scholarship webinar and the lady said that he wrote what typically what all the students write, you know, whatever they were doing. And she asked him, well, what, what else do you do? You know, like he volunteered at the library, you know, the standard stuff. And yep. she was like, well, what else? And she said that he had this yo-yo and he was like doing all kinds of stuff with the yo-yo. And it was, she was just like, wow, just fascinated by him and this yo-yo. She's like, what do you, how do you do that? And he was like, oh, I'm the yo-yo champion, like blah, blah, right. blah. <laughs> She's like, what? <laughs> like, that's yeah. what you want to put. And that's the thing that's amazing. Like, let's say you're a yo-yo champion or you're a triathlete or whatever. Sometimes it doesn't go on the resume. But if you can get to an interview, think about how the lessons that you have learned are applicable to the job you're about to take. 
right? Like I've, I do triathlons, actually I've done two. So, but I get to say triathlons because it's two now. And like this, there's this interesting thing, which is you win or lose a triathlon on your transition time, right? So most people think it's, oh, a triathlon is like, how fast can you swim? How fast can you bike? How fast can you run? No, it's how fast can you change out of your wetsuit? Because like you might lose two minutes and that two minutes really matters, especially in a sprint distance. And like just talking about how it's that little thing that as you move from phase to phase. And so so I'm going to do incident management. Really important for us as we move from phase one to phase two to make that as seamless as possible so that we don't drop things on the floor and not like. And so that conversation you could now have or, you know, I'm a yo-yo champion. Let's talk about how hard it is to learn to just be continuous and steady. And it's all about I I can't hear you. So I'm making stuff up here. Right. Figure out that story. Before yeah. you get asked. And he, she said when she started asking him more and more questions, like he, I think he was a high school student and he used to mentor the middle school students and the, or, you know, like teach yeah. them. And it was the whole thing. And she, oh my God. This, this, I, I teach people other skills that I have. Right. I want to hire that person. Like, right. Who like, is this person? We yeah. want him at our college. We want to give him a scholarship. Yep. So it was the, it was the same kind of thing. So Chris, I know you wanted to, so Scott Jaster is saying who wants to form a company just so we can hire this guy. <laughs> Good luck on that one, Scott. I will, I will tell you that I already have too many employers. <laughs> and he doesn't come cheap. Um, so I think this is student research for, is it Amber? For Alson, um, I had an interesting conversation with her yesterday and she's doing research on the development of what skills and characteristics does it take for someone to um, be successful in cybersecurity. So in developing a, a, a talent pipeline and what, what, what of those skills will make them successful versus not successful. So she's asking individuals in cybersecurity and students to fill out this um, survey. So I just shared the link for that. Go fill it out. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Awesome. So back to Andy. So you you mentioned you have um, lots of different employers. How, as a CISO, do you manage all these different teams and keep everything straight uh, with all these companies of different different sizes and ventures and missions, um, all of that? So I think they would all like to know that too. Sometimes um, it's look, first of all, I have a lot of spreadsheets. Um, I'm a huge fan of spreadsheets. I think all project management starts with spreadsheets. Hopefully it doesn't end there, but it's nice because you just sort of create things. So, you know, I keep track of like, what am I doing for this one? What am I doing for that one? Um, when's the last time I talked to this one? You know, cause I'm advising this company. I'm like, Oh, look, I haven't talked to the CEO in like 45 days. Like maybe I should give him a call and say, Hey, what's going on. Um, so I'm doing a lot of that. It, it helps that they don't all, they know that they don't all get equal portions of my time. Like it's, it's weighted. Um, so it's, it's not like I have people saying, well, I get a third of my, your time. And so did these other two, but you know, why do I see that one has your name more often? Um, actually for me, that's, that's often the hardest thing. Is, you know, I come onto a podcast and I'll say, like, hey, this is Andy Ellis. I'm the advisory CISO at Orca Security. And then, you know, maybe the Wild Ventures folks are like, oh, that was a VC-focused one. You should have mentioned that you're the operating partner at Wild Ventures instead. Honestly, sometimes that's the hardest part of my job is remembering, like, whose tagline I'm going to use for any given event. 
because it's rare that you have someone who's working for multiple employers publicly and shows up as a public face of them. Uh, that oddly is the hardest thing. And I know there's lots of people who are going to be like, Andy, that does not sound like a hard problem. That's really, realistically, that's the hardest problem I have. I feel a lot of books behind you. Um, you do. What, what recommendation would you give for a book for someone um, trying to break in? Ooh, ooh, that's a that's a really good question. Um, well, it depends. If you're if you're watching this in 2023, then the book recommendation will be One Percent Leadership by Andy Ellis. Um, that'll be launching in April of 2023. Um, but you know, if I if I'm going to do it before then. Oh, wait, there's um, the Breaking into Cybersecurity book by Chris Foulon. That's a fantastic one. Uh, oh, look, Chris has pulled it up so I don't have to reach behind me and grab it. Uh, there's Helen Patton's book, The Cybersecurity Career Path. Um, I'm not sure where I've got it up here. But honestly, honestly, I'm gonna not going to plug those as heavily as I'm going to plug general knowledge. Like, I think that if you want to get into cybersecurity... Thank you. You should start to think more deeply about how humans think and about how people are making risk decisions so that you can test, you know, your hypotheses about why someone would make a decision and then you can think about it. So uh, Seeing What Others Don't by Gary Klein. Uh, I really recommend that. If you're on a more technical path, Nancy Levison's Engineering a Safer World, also a fantastic book. Um Oh, nonviolent communication. Very important. I wish more people in security would understand how to be less violent. Um, oh, and then Amy Alcon's book, uh, Good Manners for Nice People Who Say Fuck. Um, and you might have to bleep me out if you don't do an explicit tag, but literally that's the title of the book. But you can get in trouble because I said that. Um, have you ever read um, Project Phoenix? Uh it's, I'll, I'll actually admit that I never actually read it, even much as you know, I talked to Gene Kim while he was writing it. You know, we had great conversations, but I never actually got around to reading it. Well, there's a new one for the DevOps age. Um, I think it's called The Unicorn Project, and it's the the evolution to that. But, okay. Um, yeah, let, let's let's kind of jump back in. I know we we, we ventured off. Um, how does developing a team and a, a pipeline change as you're from a, a smaller company to now an enterprise. Yep. So when you're a smaller company, uh, especially if you can't see the growth in front of you, you are going to do a lot more tactical work in building a team rather than strategic work. You have a gap, you need to close that gap. And so you need to hire somebody shaped close enough to the gap to grow. Um, now, what you want to try to do is always think about what are you, what does your team need to do versus what does a person need to do? Because if you're like, oh, I need to hire somebody with Linux expertise uh, and Windows expertise, but I've got like seven people who already have Linux expertise in the team, maybe you'd be, ha be fine with hiring somebody who's just got the Windows expertise because they'll learn Linux from everybody else. But if you hired somebody with Linux but not Windows, like there's nobody on your team and so you've got a big critical gap. So you want to think about how you're doing that. As your team gets bigger, you actually get to do this fun thing of you stop hiring people to fill roles and you start hiring people to fill your pipeline. So we had an, what we called the architect studio where we hired in uh, recent college graduates that would come into our internship program, and then go into the studio. We had the company had a technical retraining program called the Akamai Technical Academy. 
that we would just always hire one person out of it. And sometimes they'd go into our studio, sometimes into another role. And the idea behind the studio was we were providing on-the-job training. You know, we had a manager, and this was like 80% of their time was how do I develop these people, find opportunities for them. And you would spend you know, one to two years in this studio, and you would come out as a safety architect. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, look, we needed to promote this person off the incident team. And so guess what? You got a role in the incident team because I don't have to hire for that position because I hired you into my pipeline two years ago. And that's fantastic when you can do that because it means that now you get to promote people. Because here's the other dirty little secret of uh, staffing. And this is a finance problem. So Renee's happy that I'm not going to throw HR under this bus. But there is not enough incremental budget in almost any company to both promote the staff and keep up with cost of living. Like if you stay in a company and the, you know, the company, the manager isn't doing something special, your pay will always fall short of industry standards. Like that's just what's going to happen. And that's tied to just how people think about it, especially if you're in a good team, because a good team doesn't have a lot of turnover. Uh, and so like they're, they're trying to stretch this money for everyone. So what you do as a manager when you're building a team is when someone says, you know, I need this support from you. You're like, oh, that's a principal architect of work. So I need money to hire a principal architect. They give you money for a principal architect. Now, if you're foolish, you hire a principal architect for them. It's a bad idea. What you do instead is you go over and you find your senior architect who's ready for the principal architect role. You say, guess what? You're going to be doing that. Or you even laterally move a principal architect over and have a senior architect backfill a principal architect somewhere else. And you promote them. And now they're a principal architect. And you just took the difference between principal and senior architect off of your budget and promoted someone. That's new money that you just created in your promotion pool that HR and finance know nothing about. Then you take some you know architect who's ready to be a senior architect do the same thing promote them to senior take a little more money off of this requisition and you cascade this down senior researcher to architect researcher to senior researcher associate researcher to researcher and now you have an entry-level associate researcher position and you go hire somebody for that and bring them into your development pipeline and right. now I just basically took like a, a principal architect that maybe makes like, I don't know, $200,000. And I took, you know, a hundred, 110,000 of that distributed it onto a bunch of different people and only had to take 90 to a hundred thousand to hire an entry level person like that. That's how you do team development at scale. I can imagine that your turn, what was your turnover like? The, the final 15 months before I left Akamai, zero. Yeah. Did not have a single person leave. The person right. before that had, they had not been, a, we, we hired, and sometimes this is the hardest thing. Anybody who's been to HBS gets told if you ever have to let somebody go, it's, it's a failure. Like if you fire someone, you failed. The, it is true, but often you, you failed in hiring them. You didn't hire somebody into a job that they'd be successful. The last mm -hmm. person who'd left, that, that was the case. That was one I wish we could have taken back. You know, wasn't, wasn't our, our you know, most shining thing. But yeah, no, you, you can build teams. And this is not the only thing you do that keeps people around, but it helps keep them engaged. Because here's the secret. If you have somebody who's worked for your team for 10 years, they can leave and double their salary. 
Right. Like that's just going to be the case. But when they see you taking care of all the people around them and building an inclusive environment, and I've not talked about like 99% of what inclusion looks like today, they're more likely to stick around. Absolutely. I agree. Um, when, when I'm recruiting and poaching, the number one, usually the number one reason people are leaving is because they want the growth opportunity. Yep. They want something, they want to grow, they want to do something, which can easily be achieved in the same organization if the leader right. is a leader like you. Yeah, because the trigger, <laughs> the trigger that causes that person to leave who wants a growth opportunity is they think they're ready for a promotion and it doesn't matter if they are or aren't. I'll just, I'll be very honest as a manager, the, the moment someone thinks they're ready for a promotion, 80% of the time they're wrong but you should need to engage with them around that. But if they think they're ready and then you hired somebody into the role that they thought they were ready to be promoted into, you just lowered their shields. They're now targetable and easy to poach because they just heard you say to them that you're not going to promote them. Right. Right. You have a conversation with them about what it takes to develop them. There's, there's a lot around that that also needs to happen. Like, just because they want to be promoted. They're not always ready. But if you don't engage with them at that moment and instead you hire somebody like directly over them or you know, laterally over them, they're gone. Yeah. Yep. Um, Andrew says, promote from within, from a manager's point of view is the best way. Oh, and the other benefit is when you hire somebody, like the rule of thumb is 90 days until they're productive. If you promote somebody internally, they're basically productive. Immediate. Yeah. Right. I mean, Chris and I were just having this conversation with someone earlier this week around the internal transfer and the internal, you know, movement, because the yeah. culture fit is already there. They already know the industry. They know the players, like all of that stuff that takes so long to ramp up when you're bringing someone else in, even if they're the perfect, you know, solutions architect, whatever it is, Yep. you still have to know like, okay, you, you know, this person only responds to text. This person is, you know, the time zone difference, this, that, like all of these moving parts that, and just the culture of the org, do people, are they just all slack? Are they, does anyone answer the phone? Is the blah, 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 like all these different pieces and then knowing who's who. And if I go above Andy's head, is he going to get pissed off? Or if, you know, like all of this stuff. Always, yes, yes, yes is a good <laughs> answer on that one. But if I go to his peer, is that going to be a thing? Because in my other company, I can go talk to whoever I want to talk yeah. to. You know, like all of those little cultural norms, the people in the org already have, even if yeah. they don't have that specific technical skill that yep. you can always train on. So, oh, my God, this was such a good conversation. <laughs> so we have about five minutes left. And I know just asking this one question um, it's going to take up a, a bunch of that. But Andy, if you had to give one piece of sage advice from your years of wisdom uh, to someone breaking into the industry, what would that be? Don't create villains in your own head. You're going to interact with a lot of people who are doing things that you have been told nobody sane should do. And if you create a narrative in which you say that they're evil and that's why they're doing it, like you have now become the problem in your organization. Like security already has enough tension with the business that never assume that you are the hero and the other person is the villain. If you need to have a hero narrative in your head, then you are uh, Alfred. Like you're not Batman. First of all, Batman's not a hero, but let's pretend he's a hero for a moment. But you're Alfred. Your job is to give Batman a uniform. That's what security does. 
We do not produce value for most businesses. We are the sidekicks to them. So do not create narratives in which they are the villains. And now you're going to go back and listen and be like, God, it wasn't Andy villainizing HR an awful lot in here. Yes, I'm still working and developing even on the advice that I give out to people. Uh, that's so funny. I actually, I agree with everything. I, well, not everything, but most of what, 90% no, no, I heard, of what you say. I want that clope. I, I agree with everything. <laughs> I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I think this is such a really good uh good fruitful conversation because i want to expand on on that villain quote and don't Power. create villains outside i think that also goes for like job hunting yep. um when you don't hear back from a, a, a recruiter or a hiring manager because they're so busy um don't don't villainize them in your head because that just creates a, a negative toxic environment as well and it makes that job hunt that much more susceptible to burnout. Right. Not only does it create a toxic environment in your head, but you'll act on it. So if you if you say, what could be true in this person's world to make this a reasonable choice? Like you're going to get ghosted by recruiters because the incentive model for recruiters is awful. Like they get paid for successfully landing people. So the moment they get told this person's uninteresting, a lot of recruiters just move on. They don't even, it's rude. They don't send you a courtesy email. They just move on. But guess what? If you ever need to engage with that recruiter again, if you gave them a piece of your mind because they ghosted you, you have just sabotaged your ability to get a job in that location. Because I guarantee you, if you send one recruiter a nasty email, they will share it with all of their peers and you're not getting into that location again. Uh, that is true. <laughs> we we share is com is comedy. Like, oh, yeah. look what this person wrote. Somebody right. said somebody no, send them wrote. send them a delightful <laughs> note. You you could if if somebody ghosts you, if you just send them an email which just says, "Hey, I just wanted to follow up. I'm going to assume given how much time has passed that you filled this role with someone else and I'm not a fit for it. I really appreciate." Like be aggressive yeah. in your positivity and your thankfulness. Like just throw it at them not in a passive like you don't want it to sound snarky sound earnest i really appreciate the opportunity how well you worked with me if anything else comes up i'd appreciate hearing about it like right. you can just do that and you move on and if it turns out that they were still considering you now they're like oh i want to talk to this person again like that's the one percent of the time that might happen but 99 you know what they're gonna do they're probably gonna take that and forward it around to their team and be like oh my god check out this cool candidate yeah, oops, I ghosted them, but at least they sent me a nice note. <laughs> and, and, and does anyone else have a spot for this person? Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Chris. What did you say? I was going to say, that's how I made recruiter friends for years. Yeah. I, I've known them for years because we, we just interact and we're, we're yeah. back and forth and we're connected. I help them find roles. They help me find roles. It, it, it's a, a, a relationship. Yeah. Recruiters have the second worst job in the industry. Like however bad you think your job is, recruiters have it worse unless you're a sales development rep. They have it actually worse than even the recruiters do. But like these are hard jobs for people who are transactionally motivated. Like that's how their companies treat them. And so being a little nice to them, even if they're not as nice to you as they ought to be. Wow. What, what, what sage parting advice? Be nice to them. I love it, Andy. Thanks. <laughs> Um, Renee, any, any last questions? No. Nope. Okay. Well, with that, I'll remind everyone for who, whoever's following us on LinkedIn right now on LinkedIn live, um, follow myself, Renee and Andy, 
Um, for those of you joining us on YouTube, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and then a notification button right below. Uh, that way we'll pop up the next time we go live. And then for everyone following us on podcast after the fact, give us a 10 star review and share us with all your friends and family. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thanks everyone. All right. See you next week. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me. <laughs>